Hey, it's Freddy Cruz digging another one out of the archives, this time going back to spring of 2023 and a conversation I had with Barry Schwartz and Rudy Dichtel. The two have spent over 40 years studying the Shroud of Turin a piece of linen that bears the image of a crucified man. Throughout the decades, their work has been dismissed and shunned despite overwhelming scientific proof of the Shroud's authenticity. During this episode, Barry and Rudy talk about how they ended up working with the Shroud, how the Shroud was poorly protected for much of its existence, and the science behind its authentication. We recorded this conversation at the National Museum of Funeral History, where you can now see their latest exhibit, The Most Famous Burial of All Time, The Shroud of Turin. Find out more about the National Museum of Funeral History at nmfh.org. Hi, I'm Ed Sheeran. This is Bruno Mars. Hey, it's Katy Perry. This is your man Flo Rider with Freddie Cruz. This is AJ Mitchell with Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz. Tell you she go pick Mr. 305 and you already know what it is. My name is Freddie and it's time to cruise through HTX. What was the first thing you learned through your research working with the Shroud that blew your minds? I think the, the most obvious thing was when we looked at it, we discovered there was no pigmentation, no paint on the Shroud. It was not a forgery that had been painted in the medieval times. Uh, the image on the Shroud was definitely something that resided on the upper fibrils of the cloth. It did not penetrate the cloth. Um, those things were quite obvious when we saw it. And I think we all had agreed that if we had walked in there and it was a painting, we would have walked out. Mm. We would have known it, it. How long would it take this group of scientists from Los Alamos and Sandia <clears throat> and JPL to take a look at a piece of cloth and determine if it was painted or not? <laughs> 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. Right. And actually, I feel pretty much the way Rudy did, but there was a more specific moment that I can talk about and that's when professor Rigi of the italian research group who had an endoscopic camera and he inserted it between the shroud and the backing sheet that had been sewn on by the sisters after the fire in 1534 and he inserted that and he turned on the focusing light for his endoscopic camera and it transilluminated the blood stain on the forehead and we saw immediately that where that blood was, there was added density because it blocked some of the light being transmitted through the cloth. And it was then that Eric Jumper said to me, we need to photograph the entire shroud with transmitted light. We saw that, and he transilluminated that. They gave me an opportunity a day or so later to spend 30 minutes and photograph the entire shroud. Now, there are blood stains on the shroud. They add density with transmitted light. They're very obvious and almost opaque. Yeah, There are water stains from putting out the fire in 1532 where the water has spread out and at the periphery of those water stains, it carried with it particulates that showed density at the periphery of the water stains. Those water stains even show up on the x-rays. And when I made the photograph, particularly of the ventral, the front image of the man, you can look on the transmitted light image and see the blood, the water stains, the scorches, the patches, no image. And that's the first evidence that we have. And that was the thing that knocked me out. It's the first evidence we have. Nothing's been applied to create that image. No paints, no pigments, no dyes. Or we would have seen added density where those were applied. And I can show that image and say, look, the image is not visible with transmitted light. It is not painted. I think... 
of the shroud, the actual shroud, and we're here at the National Museum of Funeral History in celebration at the day of this recording in celebration of the Shroud of Turin, the most famous burial in the history of all of humanity. And it's a copy of the shroud, a certified copy, but thinking about the shroud in terms of going to Washington, D.C. with my family when I was in junior high and seeing the Declaration of Independence and how it's just lock vaulted. You could, you could probably, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't dare anybody to try. You can fire a nuke at it and it would most <laughs> likely survive. Yeah. Um, but it, it lived all these hundreds and hundreds of years without that kind of protection. And then your guys were able to take a camera and stuff it in between something and make the discovery that we're talking about right now. Right. And, and look, that's the first, uh, no, certainly many of the other scientific tests that were done by our team, the x-ray fluorescence, uh, the chemical analysis, spectral analyses, all of those support the fact that it's not a painting. Mm-hmm. But visually, it's that transmitted light image that immediately shows you the image is not visible with transmitted light. That's what knocked me out. That was your original question. So, But that's what blew me away was that because I was totally skeptical. And because I'm Jewish, I didn't have any emotional attachment. So I could be honest about my feelings about it. And I expected, I even stupidly said before we left, I said, ah, give us five minutes, we'll find a paint and come home. <laughs> kind of like what you were saying. Oh, wow. If, if that had been the case, we would have left. That would have been the end of it. Yeah. But there's none there. And I want to I go back to something that you said, and I listened to it in a previous interview with museum CEO Genevieve, and that's that you have no emotional attachment to the shroud. And so in doing some research for the interview, I did a Google search in, in, my, in my typing, Shroud of Turin, and then one of the first automatic fills is hoax. And so listening to the two of you talk about the science as it pertains to the shroud you don't have an emotional attachment there's no skin of the game horse in the race there's no horse in the race and so yeah let's talk about that versus people who are like yeah whatever well you know i've thought long barry's in the process of writing a paper now Mm, trying to downplay some of the comments our work has been challenged the rantings of believers which the three Jewish guys on the team would have disagreed with pretty quickly. Uh, but look, th- this is something where if people who don't want to accept the Shroud of Turin as something that's potentially authentic, I can understand that because if you're an atheist and this turns out to be the real thing, your whole worldview has been shot. That's it. Yeah. You, you've got to start from scratch. And you know how humans are. We making change is something we resist at every possible level. (sighs) Tell me about it. Yeah. And so (laughs) I think that they have to continue to say it's a hoax because the alternative is to completely redo their entire worldview, which I don't think people want to do. No, exactly. And this isn't a religious podcast, but it's almost as if the, the people who are accusing the, the believers are in fact religious about, being non-believers. Being non-believers. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And and look, from my point of view, I have an affinity for the shroud and an emotional attachment, but not the same as a Christian would, mm. because 
that's a Jewish man, and that's a Jewish burial shroud, and he was afforded an authentic Jewish burial. So when people said, have said to me, well, what are you doing involved with this? You're a Jew. I go, yeah, well, so is the man on the shroud. So why, why shouldn't I be involved? Right, exactly, exactly. And I want to go to you, Rudy, and ask you about how you got involved with the project and connecting with Barry, because this was something that started a long time ago when you were a little kid. Yes, for me, <clears throat> for me, it started 71 years ago. By the way, you look great. <laughs> I agree. Thank you. As a young boy, I went to a parochial school, and the priests at that school were redemptorist fathers. And at that time, they were publishing little pamphlets about the Shroud of Turin. And they would come to the school and talk to us about the Shroud. So I knew all about the Shroud as a child before I met John Jackson. 51 years ago, I met John Jackson at his home. I had just come back from a tour in Germany as an exchange scientist with the German government. I was in the Air Force, and the Air Force sent me to Germany to work in a laboratory. And because of that situation, we did not participate in church. The churches were far away, and the little chapel in our town was always filled. We couldn't even get inside the little chapel on Sundays. So my wife and I made a vow that when we got back to Albuquerque, New Mexico, we would join the chapel program on base. And the very first activity was a prayer meeting at John Jackson's house. And John Jackson, at the break, we met over the coffee urn, and he started talking to me about the shroud that he, as a young boy, always wanted to do a scientific experiment on the shroud, because he also knew about it from a very young age. And I conversed with him, and the last thing I said was, if you ever do that, I'd like to go along with you. And that kind of solidified our friendship. And as we walked out the door, my wife and I said goodbye to John and Kay Jackson at their door. And he said, you know, Rudy, you're the first person that I've ever spoken to that knew about the shroud before I had to explain it in great detail. Huh. And with that, we were bosom buddies and we spent a lot of time together. And we even picked up the third party, uh, Eric Jumper. And the three of us are the formative members of Stirrup. And we put together the, the team. Everything makes sense as you start to reflect on your life. And, you know, it's one of those things that, I heard you talk about, it's like you, you would have told me all these years later that when I was younger that I'd be working doing this. Yeah, I would, <laughs> I would have laughed in your face. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I've since retired from my photography and video production business. I formed a nonprofit 13 years ago. And as soon as I did that, everything else stopped. Uh, I gave up all the other stuff. And look, I live on a dirt road in the Rocky Mountains. Not too many clients for video production up there anyway. And for 27 years, he's managed as a webmaster his website and collected all of the scientific and all of the literature about the Shroud of Turin. Shroud.com. Shroud yes. Very good. Look, I, I was frustrated in the early days because uh, I tell the story of this guy who called me and said, hey, you know that Shroud thing you're involved with? It's just a photo by Leonardo da Vinci. And I, I thought he was joking, so I just laughed. And he said, no, I'm being serious. I said, really, where, where are you getting your information? And, and he said, well, my wife and I were checking out the grocery store. It was on one of the tabloids. <laughs> and I had this, at that moment, I had an epiphany. This was in late 1995. And I said, you know, and there was a manila folder on the desk, and I wrote four words, consider building a website. Mm. I really believe that that's the moment that my real purpose of being involved with the Shroud of Turin Research Project finally 
came I to fruition. Matured yes. to a point where I was now ready to do what the real job was because, you know, I made those photographs in 1978. They remained in demand even after the rest of the team sort of finished their work and moved on. I was the administrator of those photographs. They were in demand by researchers, by uh, television production companies, by uh, book authors, by <coughs> magazines. So I could never disengage. Um, and so I couldn't escape this even when I tried. And, and what's interesting is Barry started his website two years before Google. So there was really no way other than Netscape, I guess, to, to ask the question about the shroud. Yeah. But when Barry put his website together, people could get in, in yeah. answers to the questions. If, if you had typed shroud into the search engines that were available in those That's days, right, yeah. uh, what was it again? Netscape. That, yeah, there were. I can't remember. So that was that was the the Google before Google was Google. Yeah, was and, Netscape. And, and it's funny because okay. <laughs> Netscape was the browser, the first commercially available browser. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah. So uh, my frustration was that when I heard this guy talk about that, and I had access to all this data, but I also realized who goes to research libraries? The only place you could find those journals, unless you were a researcher or at a university somewhere, mm -hmm. you couldn't see this and it occurred to me that the internet was the perfect place to make to collect all this material which i'd already been doing anyway put it all in one place put it on the internet so everybody could see it there's no advertising no cookies no no trackers we don't monetize our visitors so we don't count clicks we don't care about any of that no commercial or no advertising of any kind on the website the purpose being People of any ilk, whether it's from a scientific, historical, or religious aspect, can go there, can remain anonymous, can look at anything they want and study the shroud as much in depth as they want without feeling like somebody's looking over their shoulders or keeping tabs on who they are, so that the idea is to make this material available. And because of the radiocarbon dating, a lot of the STIRP work was just ignored after, after all that, and yet... The reason the STIRP work is important, it's the only science in the published literature based on direct physical examination of that object. And those are primary sources. Anything that comes after that is not as valid in my mind as the primary sources based on direct physical exam of the shroud. And I can tell you, I really appreciate the website because as he mentioned, you to research the papers, you have to go to a university library. You have to spend considerable time you have to access the papers you want, and it takes a, a certain amount of time to access those papers. And you can spend a lifetime just doing the research in the library. There it's available on shroud.com, and it's All on convenient. one page. There's yeah, one page with all of them. Yeah, so all on can. one page. And and what's and, and to further your point is that you don't have to go from college to college or travel across the world to find something because it's all right there on your website. Now, I got to ask you, Barry, because you had the foresight. Does it, does it just boggle the mind that it took something like a 1990s version of, oh, I, just, oh, well, I found it on TikTok, so it has to be true. Right. But it was, I read it on the tabloid, so it has to be true. Well, <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because I've had people say to me, you know, you're the number one organic search result if you search on Shroud and Turin on Google. And that's when I say what you said earlier is, yeah, but we're two years older than Google, so it doesn't really count. I mean, we were online January of 96, and Google came along in 1998. 
So being at the top of the pile, if you know the way Google's algorithm works, it looks for links back to your site. Yeah. So the more link people who have linked back to Shroud.com, that pushes us higher and higher. And because we were the first one out there, and I continue to add to it every quarter, it's going to stay at that top of the pile. But we don't care about that because we're not monetizing our visitors. So whether we're at the top or the bottom of the pile, doesn't matter. To disagree respectfully... I would have to say it does matter because we're trying to push out all the information as as much information about the shroud as possible because it's important to get this information out no matter again like you said no matter if it's from a, a religious standpoint historical or scientific that way we can learn exactly what it is about this piece that makes it so special and I like to shift the conversation to doing the work that you all have been doing especially back in the 70s with regards to being around the actual piece and how it wasn't protected the way the Americans protected the Declaration of Independence and how it survived all these hundreds of years. Yes. They rolled it up on a dowel and put it in a wooden box. <laughs> Not exactly the best thing to do. While it's on public display, it was in behind a, a bulletproof glass inside of a case where dry nitrogen gas was passed over the shroud, pristine conditions. Mm-hmm. But the minute the public display was over, they'd roll it up. Back up. Yeah. And put it in a wooden box, and essentially it was exposed to the air for the next 40 years or the next 20 years when they came out again. Yeah, it wasn't until a, a fire in the chapel in 1997. Unfortunately, they were doing a remodeling of the chapel. The, the dome in the chapel where the shroud was permanently stored, uh, was start, pieces were starting to fall out of it, and they were afraid somebody was going to get hurt or killed. Mm. So they took the shroud in its reliquary box, still in the wooden box, put it behind bulletproof glass out in the cathedral itself, and then restored that. As soon as they were done with the restoration, there was a, this fire that destroyed and gutted that. Remember that beautiful black altar, altar that it was yes, a uh-huh. black marble altar destroyed by the the high heat? Well, the firemen had to take a sledgehammer to a, break the bulletproof glass. Yeah, and but they he rescued didn't use it. an axe. He used a sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah, and they got the shroud out. It was not harmed in any way. Thank goodness. Which, Thank goodness they were, it was out for that remodeling. Um, so they removed the shroud. And it was after that that somebody in Turin said, you know, maybe the wooden box isn't such a good idea after all. And we had proposed a hermetically sealed casket or box. It, and I'm sorry, what is hermetically sealed? It's a box that you can close, suck out the air, and inject dry nitrogen gas, and that would preserve mm. the environment for and, the shroud. And that's what they do with the Declaration of Independence in Washington. Hermetically sealed, Hermetically yes. sealed. And, of course, the lighting has to be right, too, because, you know, when you go to D.C. and you're in the National Archives, it's rather dark. Yeah, and, and that's because the ultraviolet output of lights is damaging to any of these old documents or, yeah. or the cloth. shroud or cloth. Yeah. Um, UV, I mean, anybody who lives in... High altitudes are out in very sunny areas. Knows <laughs> you put something out in the sunlight for a couple of weeks and it's faded. All right. Newspapers mm-hmm. age very quickly. Very quickly, yeah. Because <laughs> it's a very thin newsprint kind of paper. So ultimately, it took another near dramatic destruction of this piece of cloth for somebody to say, "Wait a minute, uh, maybe maybe this wooden box isn't the best." But they had done that for hundreds of years. So throughout all that history. 
the shroud was really not well protected, and the, and the Savoy family used to travel around with it and hang it up on balconies. In Leary, France, they actually paraded it down the street. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And, you know, there is a, it's an industrial city, not greatly industrial, but it's an industrial city, and all of that pollution can be found and was found on the cloth, but Get now the cloth is clean. Oh, my gosh. It's clean, and it's sealed, and it's in a container that's light tight. Temperature and humidity controlled by computers. Um, nitrogen argon, I believe, is what they're using as, as the gases. And because of that, it's better preserved today than it ever has been in its entire history. I want to go back to you guys talking about how it was cleaned. I mean, we're talking about something from literally thousands of years ago. And I can't imagine that even, I mean, I'd be afraid to look at it and make it disintegrate. I'll introduce it. 2002, we had a conservationist come in and she was allowed to preserve the cloth. And she did a number of things to it that are to our chagrin. We mm. can't believe that they allowed her to do that. And I'll let Barry mention all the things that were done. Yeah, this was a, a Swiss textile expert. And for those who can't see my fingers <laughs> making quote marks, I'm making quote marks. The Flory. Uh, Flory Lemberg, yeah. Flory Lemberg. Yeah, and, and she, uh, look, I know she meant well. She wore no gloves. She wore no hairnet. Oh, gosh. She wore no mask oh. or protective clothing. She handled every square inch of that cloth. Oh, my goodness. They scraped away the charred areas and vacuumed it, which means any future pollen uh, studies can't be done because they've disrupted everything. Okay, so when you say charred areas, that's from the fire in the 1500s. From 1532 fire left charred areas around the burn holes. She took the the patches off the burn holes and then cut the charred material away oh, God. or scraped it and vacuumed some. And the other thing they did was- I'm they sorry, used, you said vacuumed? Vacuumed. Yes. That's why the <laughs> pollen studies can't be done. No more pollen studies. <laughs> no more well, pollen studies. Okay, well, forget about the pollen studies. I mean, if you're vacuuming it, I mean, wouldn't you want, wouldn't you be concerned that the shroud would just let- <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not that fragile. Okay. That kind of, and it wasn't a quite that kind it's of interesting. Okay. John Jackson has done an extremely detailed study of the folds of the shroud. Because the shroud is historically described as being folded up in different configurations. Right. Okay. And now all of the fold marks have been removed because the shroud cloth has been stretched. No. So the man of the shroud has gotten a little taller. No. Yeah, and, and seven centimeters in length they added after the intervention. But the worst part of it is this. People in the 21st century always ask about DNA. So now... <laughs> we got to have that scientific proof, son. So, well, so here's the problem. Every one of us left our DNA on it. I happen to be a long-haired Jewish guy like the man of the shroud. But if we were to do a DNA analysis today of the shroud, we'd find that the man of the shroud is a Swiss woman. Because oh, she left her DNA on every square the inch of the cloth. One, yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting. There was a woman who came to Turin to, to view the shroud because she had gone through a very traumatic divorce. And so she wanted to make a pilgrimage. And she was very devoted to the idea of praying at the, in front of the shroud in the cathedral. And she came to our hotel while we were eating breakfast. And all of us were kind of in the same hotel. So we all ate breakfast together. And she said, if I send flowers to the palace, would you please take it into the shroud? She only meant for us to bring it in there and sit it there and you know, let it be in the company of the shroud. We actually took one rose of the bouquet and we put it to, to, 
we touched the shroud cloth in one corner, which we documented. So there is some evidence of a flower being in contact with the, <laughs> the shroud, but we documented it. That was the important thing. Oh, we brought it back to her and we told her what we had done and she broke into tears. Oh. This was something really significant for, for her. Mm-hmm. And uh, she treasured that. And she lives in Denver, of yeah. all places. As far as the, the pollen evidence that's on the shroud, people forget that, first of all, Flowers are not part of Jewish burial ceremonies. They don't use flowers. Today I learned that fact. Yes. Okay. So, and flowers could have been added to that cloth at any point in its history. At times, we know it was folded in quarters at some point in time and laid on an altar. There's a set of L-shaped burn holes on the cloth that most likely came from incense or from the coals in an incense sensor. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's... You know, all, all of these things that have happened to the cloth and flowers could have been laid on. If, if it was on an altar, then in, sure. a, in a Catholic, Catholic ceremony, yeah, that, then flowers. flowers would have been absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. So even though people look at the flowers and say, well, this proves the shroud was in a certain place at a certain time, not necessarily because flowers could have been put there at any point in its history. But those L-shaped burn holes are pretty interesting. Because when the carbon dating came out, those of us who saw the dates of, what was it, 1260, 1350 or whatever, but we knew about this illuminated Hungarian manuscript called the Prey Codex, and it shows Jesus naked. This is a point very few people make. Christian artists have always painted Jesus with a modesty cloth. The man of the shroud is naked. And this illuminated manuscript shows an attempt to duplicate the herringbone weave of the shroud with a zigzag pattern, which is how it's often described. It shows bloodstains. It shows Jesus with his arms crossed the way we see on the shroud and a naked Jesus, which is very rare in Christian art. And it shows one set of the L-shaped burn holes. And that illuminated manuscript from 1190, 70 years earlier than the earliest date given by the carbon dating guys, immediately telling me, who I'm not a physicist, the carbon there's dating is something wrong. wrong with the carbon date. Yes. And that was the first piece of evidence that I can point to. And I show that in some of my lectures that, look, this, this illuminated manuscript, that, that monk might have figured out the herringbone weave on his own, <laughs> but the L-shaped burn holes, they're unique to the shroud. <sighs> he had to have seen it before he illuminated that manuscript. And that was done circa 1190, 70 years earlier than than the earliest date of the carbon dating guys. And there are so four of those L-shaped. There's, there's four sets of them. Four sets. And we know that the shroud was folded in quarters because we can tell the top one has the biggest holes. And as it burned down through the four layers, the holes got smaller and smaller and smaller. Makes sense. And, and I have an illustration of photographically where I've cropped those four pieces and put them into one image. You can see the top, the second layer, the third layer, and the fourth layer as the holes successfully got smaller. And we know that they predate the fire of 1532 because in 1516, the Savoy family commissioned an artwork and they made that copy and the artist in 1516 included those L-shaped burn holes. So we know they predate the 1532 fire. And it makes sense then that some monk in some abbey somewhere who illuminated this manuscript had seen the shroud at some point and from memory, because there were no cameras to take photos at some point from memory, he remembered those L-shaped burn holes and included them. And to me, that was the strongest piece of evidence right at the beginning that the carbon dating couldn't be right. 
And that's why it's so disastrous when they conserve the cloth, they steam clean the cloth, cloth yeah. and stretched out all of the fold marks. John Jackson devoted a great deal of time of studying all of the different methods that the cloth may have been folded up in. And there's a tetra plume, which is the fourfold. Yeah, tetra diplum. And, yeah, and, and fortunately, we made some photographs that show those folds that John has still been able to use, but w- would have been nice to have those left over so that he could study them in more depth. But, you know, look, we were the, the odd guys out. We came from America. This was their baby. They were not happy to have us there in the first place, but they couldn't say anything. The Italians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a lot of difficulty in part because of the language barrier. They didn't read English. We didn't read Italian. So there was not a lot of great communication amongst us uh, or between us. And and I can understand them feeling a little bit put out by the fact that they were never given this permission. And they're right there in Turin and have studied the shroud for decades longer. Uh, all of a sudden, this group of American guys come over from big name laboratories. They were not thrilled. Probably intimidated. And some of them to this day are not thrilled (laughs) about the fact that we did that. Right. But I mean, the work needed to be done. And really, it just continues to boggle the mind that the shroud was, uh, quote unquote, protected in such a way. It was treated in such a way in the name of protecting and preserving it. And now, you know, thank goodness it's uh, properly stored. And, um, you know, you can learn more about this piece Uh, the Shroud of Turin, when you come by the National Museum of Funeral History. And by the way, the website is nmfh.org, nmfh.org, to learn more about Barry's work. It is shroud.com. I think since we're coming to the end, I should mention the fact that the next public display of the Shroud may occur in 2025, and people should now prepare for that venture. It's quite likely that it will, because in December we published a a translated from Italian article uh, from the new Archbishop of Turin, who intimated he he couldn't say it because the Pope is the owner. He has to declare it officially. But the Archbishop of Turin intimated that there's probably going to be an exhibit in 2025, which is a good hint that it's probably going to happen. Which is a good indication that we, the people, if we want to see it, will have that opportunity and should start planning accordingly. Absolutely. Start saving your pennies. It's, uh, it doesn't cost anything. No, it doesn't cost anything to go in. I'm but sure the flight got, does. you got to fly to Italy and you got to pay for a hotel room yeah. So and there you, you got to go. eat some food. So you better bring some cash. I love that. Thank you both so much for coming by the podcast today. Well, thank you very right. much. Thank you for having us and our pleasure. Hey, it's me. I'm back with a quick little nudge. If you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did, putting it together for you, then please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to the newsletter at cruisethroughhtx.com and share with your family and friends. Thank you.